Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. You know, inequality, you get into a lot of debates about how to measure it. We're seeing things get worse. The stock markets rebound signals a V-shaped recovery. A K. A V-shaped recovery. Shaped recovery. That's straight up. Letter going up. It is turning out to be a V. Regardless, there is a lot of measurable proof that it's happening. And so the question is, you know, how big of a concern is that? How big of a concern is that? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for asking that. This is Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. And if you've been paying any attention to the debates recently, you might have heard these two letters come up. V and K. K. K K-shaped. V-shaped. That's in reference to the economy and what indicators we can use to measure how it's recovering during the pandemic. Victoria Guida is here to explain. And I cover financial policy for Politico. Awesome. Victoria, there was this moment during the first presidential debate where uh, Chris Wallace, the moderator, actually got a word in edgewise for a moment. And he asked this question. President Trump, you say... You say we are in a V-shaped recovery. Vice President Biden, you say it's more of a K-shape. More of a K-shape. What difference What difference does does that that mean mean to the American people in terms of the economy? And so, you know, after I got over the like abstract sound of this, I actually thought, you know, this this question basically sums up the two presidential campaign messages just like translated into nerd. So w- what are they talking about here? Can you detranslate the, this question? And, you know, what is Trump talking about with the V? And what is Biden talking about with the K? Yeah, no, I did think that it was bold that Chris Wallace asked that question without explaining at all what he meant. But... <laughs> The letters are referring to what a, a graph of economic growth would look like. So if you think about a V, v. it's down sharply and then up sharply. V, Victor. So this was sort of the best case scenario for what would happen in the pandemic because, you know, we would have these lockdowns, which then caused the sharp drop. And then the idea was if we got the virus under control, we would be able to reopen the economy and then you would have a, a sharp coming back up. V. So... President Trump still maintains that we're in a V-shaped recovery. I mean, we we have had some recovery. Um, you know, a lot of the economic data has been positive, but that positivity has been slowing down. But what Biden is talking about with the K-shaped recovery is basically graphing what inequality would look like. So if you think about a K, right, you have K one part of it is going up kilo and the other part of it is going down. So the idea is basically that for people who are well off, those of us who fortunate enough to still have our jobs, we're saving a lot more money because we're not going to restaurants or movie theaters or vacations. People who are in white collar jobs that are able to work from home, are able to save more, that are invested in the stock market, their financial picture is improving. A new study says that U.S. billionaires actually got richer during the pandemic, some of them a lot richer. Whereas then you have all these other people where their wealth is just cratering because, you know, they're out of a job, 
they can't find work because a lot of, you know, a lot of these industries like travel and entertainment aren't really hiring. This jobs report will really show the stark difference between the haves and the have-nots. And that's been definitely the hallmark of the entire pandemic crisis. In the and so it's, it's sort of like graphing what inequality would look like. And in the middle of all this, the federal government kind of let the initial rounds of coronavirus relief run out without being able to figure out, in, in terms of uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans in Congress, the Trump White House, figure out what they wanted to do next and come to agreement on that. Part of the issue is, uh, so as I said, there, there's been some economic recovery, which is partially just because, you know, the economy is more open than it was in, in March and April. Um, also because the, the economy had a huge shot in the arm because of the economic relief that was passed by Congress. And a lot of that has now run out. And so the fear is, for a lot of lower income people, you know, they were able to get these generous unemployment benefits, they were able to get stimulus checks, and that helped sort of get them through a period where they actually, in some cases, improved their savings pre-pandemic. But now, especially if they're, they continue to be out of work, they're just going to spend all of that, you know, living their lives. And um, it could lead to a, a really sharp downturn again now that the stimulus is starting to run out. It's, it's sort of unclear to what extent that's going to happen, but we're, we're definitely seeing some of the slowing in the data. So that brings in the, the bottom leg of that K hey. you're talking about. And you and our colleague Kelly Madrick wrote recently about this new survey from the Federal Reserve, which had some pretty eye-opening data about the stock market and how it reflects wealth gaps in the U.S. So tell us, what did you find in this data? 53% of Americans are invested in the stock market in some way, um, you know, whether it's through direct holdings, like just owning stock, owning mutual funds, having an IRA, or through their 401k or, or a pension. Uh, but when it comes to how that is sort of distributed among wealth percentiles, the top wealthiest 1% um, control 50% of the value of stock that's held by households. And then the top 10% control 88%. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty striking number. I will caveat here and say that, um, you know, that refers to stocks, mutual funds, IRAs, and doesn't include the 401ks and pensions. But CEOs and other high net worth individuals also have 401ks and pensions. And so uh, I, I would imagine that the, that the distribution is, is relatively similar. Um, but regardless... The top wealthiest 1% control half of the value of shares owned by American households, while the top 10% control 88%. Wow. That's very striking. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say this, this sort of feeds the idea of, of a K-shaped recovery, because when you look at the fact that, I mean, although the stock market did drop a ton at the beginning of this crisis... It's come back a lot, and, and, and depending on the day, some days it's actually hit new records. So uh, for people who are invested, uh, you know, that's great. And that includes some, you know, middle-income people, obviously. But the vast, vast share of those gains are going to people who already have a ton of wealth. Right, right. So, you know, when Trump defended his point of view at the debate... Now, let me tell you about the stock market. Talking about the stock market, his fixation on the stock market, he said... When the stock market goes up, that means jobs. It also means 401ks. But what you're saying is that, you know, when you look at the distribution of, of all that, you know, it's it's not that simple. Any gains we see there are just not, not very broadly distributed at this point. 
Yeah, well, and, and it's 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 actually kind of a complex assertion. The stock market means jobs because in in some senses he's right, right? Because you know the stock market is a way for companies to raise money without having to raise more debt, um, you know, which makes them stronger companies. So so in some ways it reflects investor confidence that a company is doing well. And if a company is doing well, that will also potentially translate to employment opportunities. But especially right now in this crisis, I think um, this is a time when the stock market and companies' performance is actually more disconnected than usual. Because I cover the Federal Reserve, and a lot of what the Fed's actions have done have been to make it easier for companies to borrow more money, which makes it easier for them to get through all of this. A lot of the other actions taken by the Fed have just sort of boosted financial assets in general. So if you're somebody who it has money and wants to figure out where to put it right now, the stock market's a good place to put it. And so the stock market going up is not necessarily indicative of the fact that the that people are getting hired right now. In fact, a lot of companies whose stocks are going up have also laid off people. You, you kind of anticipated my next question. Like, how, how new is this phenomenon? I mean, I think especially, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, we've been reading more and more about, you know, the inequitable wealth distribution and, and, and the fact that this is growing and growing. This disconnect that you, you mentioned between the stock market and, and kind of overall prosperity, obviously, some of it is linked to the current pandemic situation that we're in. But it's, it's also kind of a, a growing, like a long growing thing. Inequality has slowly been growing. It's been a really slow trend. I mean, the fact that the richest 1% own about half of the value of stocks owned by American households, and I, I keep caveating it that way because there's also a bunch of stock that's owned by institutions. Um, so it, it's not like half the value of all stock. That has been sort of a growing trend for a while. It's been um, creeping up, but it's been, a, it's been about that level for a, a long time. A lot of people would make the argument that inequality really started to grow a lot after sort of the 1970s, 1980s, and that's really when the trend has has sped up. It would be a whole nother hour-long conversation as to (laughs) all of the, the things that might have gone into that. Regardless, there is a lot of measurable proof that it's happening. And so the question is, you know, how big of a concern is that? How big of a concern is that? Thank you for asking that. I, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not just going to let a fastball <laughs> sail down the middle of the plate right there. I'm going to swing at it. So. You know, somebody pointed out to me after after this story ran that it's not really a question of how much of the wealth is controlled by the richest people, but rather how significant stocks are to everybody else, right? And if you look at stocks and, and pensions and things like that, it's still a relatively small portion of wealth among the bottom 50% of wealth percentile. But the real problem with that is that if you are somebody who primarily builds wealth through income, if you don't have a job, you're screwed, right? Yeah. If you're somebody who has a lot of wealth elsewhere, your situation is a lot less fragile. Right. So there's there's the there's the moral aspect of this, which is that there are all these people that are in a much more fragile situation where it's, you know, they, they could easily much more easily be, you know, out on the street, hungry, which, you know, we're seeing a bit of now. And then there's sort of the broader economic concern, which is that when you have a huge portion of the population that is in a more fragile state, those people are going to spend less and 
like 70% of the US economy is consumer spending. So the rest of us suffer too. And it makes the economy overall sort of more fragile. I feel like things that happen slowly are particularly difficult for governments to respond to because there's often never one kind of moment of impetus to deal with it, except potentially now with coronavirus. And so it's becoming a big piece of the presidential campaign right now. Biden's been doing this whole Scranton versus Park Avenue thing on the stump to highlight inequalities and inequities in the system and also his upbringing and and Donald Trump's upbringing. Uh, Some of our colleagues at Politico have written really interesting stories about how haunted Biden or at least people around him are by the economic recovery after the Great Recession, you know, the stimulus that Biden played such a big role in shepherding in 2009, and the fact that it it wasn't up to the task of fully stimulating the economy at the time. And that crippled in some ways the rest of Barack Obama's presidency. So in terms of the way you see Biden positioning himself now and planning his potential administration, his advisors, do you see this effort to have to have watched that and try and to take something else uh, from that, to take a new direction in the future and get a new tack on the economic recovery this time around if Biden gets elected and gets the chance? Yeah, I, I think so. So I, I will say, I, I think just more broadly, there's been a shift in the way that people think about debt and deficit and government spending, because I do think that after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, you, you mentioned in 2009, there was this stimulus, which at the time was considered to be massive, right? It was like $800 billion. The nearly $800 billion economic stimulus package was signed into law in February. So far, which, you know, now <laughs> after the CARES Act feels so quaint, but, you know, at the time that seems like a really big package. And you had Republicans, especially, but also some Democrats who were concerned about racking up too much debt and, you know, potentially causing inflation, right? Because those are a couple of the biggest limitations, right? So so one is that you have too much debt that the world doesn't have demand for because uh, the way that the, that the U.S. government gar- borrows money is by um, selling treasury bonds. So mm-hmm. one of the concerns would be that you issue too much debt and people won't have demand for it. And then your interest rates skyrocket and it becomes really expensive to borrow more money. The other concern is that you spend too much and generate too much inflation. So neither of those things really happened. I mean, we, we have a ton of debt right now and there's still a ton of demand for U.S. treasuries because they're a really safe asset. So, you know, I, I think that that's one of the dynamics that you've seen in terms of the CARES Act where people are now willing to spend money. I mean, part of it is just that I think everyone recognized that there was this massive black hole in the economy that for the time being only the government could fill. Also, Republicans, I'm sure, are a bit more willing to spend while they're in power. But I do think that in Washington, you, in general, you've seen sort of a shift um, in terms of how they think about about debt and deficit. And I think that if Biden were elected, that would definitely be that was definitely a lesson learned because, you know, by stopping spending after that big stimulus package, basically you ended up with a recovery that was very long, but but pretty underwhelming. I mean, growth was pretty weak pretty much every year. It was the longest expansion in U.S. history. You know, maybe it was flattened a little bit, basically, right, from uh, yeah. from where it could have been. They flattened the wrong curve, yep. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, taking all this into account, also, you know, assuming that the year 2020 does actually come to an end at some point, uh, instead of just carrying on for perpetuity, like it feels like it has been, if you could kind of look into your crystal ball at politics and government going into the next 
few years, few elections, whatever. How how do you expect this kind of deepening wealth divide that you've been telling us about to to shape American politics? It increasingly causes a divide in the way that Americans view just the country generally, right? And you know, if I if I put on my pundit hat for a second, right now, I mean, you've seen all of the unrest that's in cities right now. Obviously, that's that's explicitly about police brutality against black people, but also there's this profound situation where there people are, have lost their jobs, people don't, you know, people have piles of medical debt and other kinds of debt, people can't access food. You have sort of this increasing divide between the haves and the have-nots, and if more and more people are the have-nots, I mean, historically, that doesn't usually end well. So there's that to consider. And, and I don't necessarily even mean like a, like a revolution, but also just sort of like a, a democratic overthrow of the situation. I mean, you know, Republicans are always complaining about socialism, but if you have a situation in which the government is not meeting the needs of its people, uh, usually the people start to seek some sort of radical change because they're not getting what they need out of the government. And so, you know, I think that that's a really deep philosophical issue. And then, you know, on sort of a practical level, inequality leads to all these other problems, right? Like if you think about um, student debt, right? You have all these people whose parents can't send them to college, so they have to take out loans and they build more student I mean, that's just one thing, but it's like there's all these different ways in which inequality trickles out into everything else that's happening. And so it's um, it's a central thing that I think does and will increasingly feed out into everything else. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I mean, like inequality feeding instability, you've got you know, the last, what, 15 years of elections have gone every which way, right? You've had Democratic waves, you've had Republican waves, everything in between. You've had very few like non-waves, though, in, in each election. And, you know, I, I wonder if that if that's for, for the reason that you described. There's just this kind of like deep-seated feeling that the government is just not getting it done for people. It's a really good point. A few lightning round questions here. Uh, for you. If you could pick one thing that you feel uh, most people get wrong when they think about the stock market, what would it be? Here's your time. I'm, I'm giving you the platform to now set them straight. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So I'm going to do a counterintuitive one and say that um, I actually think that the stock market is more important to the economy than people appreciate because roughly half of people aren't invested in the stock market and they think that it doesn't affect them at all. But actually, the stock market, when you think about the the scope of, of institutions that are invested in the stock market, it includes hospitals, it includes, you know, university endowments, it includes all of these other things that, um, you know, if, if the stock market crashes, will have sort of this broader effect than you think. So, um, it's, it's it's weird because it, it you know it it does feed this wealth inequality piece, but also uh, you know this concept of, of financialization, where everything is is tied in one way or another to financial markets and the stock mm-hmm. market. I think is something that's kind of underappreciated by people. Well, you know that that leads very nicely into into the next thing I was going to ask you. You know, I'm gonna, I'm going to read you a couple tweets now from the president. Here's one from Tuesday. The fake news media refuses to discuss how good the economy and stock market, including jobs under the Trump administration, are doing. We will soon be in record territory. 
All they want to, there's a lot of capital letters here. I'm trying to make it come through. All they want to discuss is COVID-19, where they won't say it, but we beat the Dems all day long also. Exclamation point. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, there are, there are a few things to unpack there. One thing I will say on jobs is we lost like tens of millions of jobs and we've gotten about half of them back. And the pace of job growth is starting to slow, which is one of the things that I mentioned earlier as, as a sign that the economic recovery is maybe starting to peter out and sort of uh, dangerous. So he's right that we have recently seen jobs reports that are basically higher than you would have ever seen on a monthly level. But that's because we're coming out of such a big hole and we're we're still very far away from where we started. So there is that. Um, the stock market, he's right. It's it's high. Um, I don't know what he's talking about, the media refusing to cover it. There's there's a whole financial press. There's also, you know, there's a little ticker on the in the bottom right of like all the cable networks, right? The every every day. Right, yeah. <laughs> kind of stresses me out to be honest. But the <laughs> <laughs> Just as a side note, like Day to day, what the stock market is doing isn't actually that important, unless something really crazy happens, right? Like unless it goes up by a ton or it goes down by a ton. So you're saying that if if you were president, you wouldn't be tweeting stock market up big, 466 points, 28,149. Great news for America. Jobs, jobs, jobs. It's another Trump tweet. That was not one of my tweets. It was a, a really good talking point for him earlier in his presidency, because it is true that the stock market went up a ton over the first few years of his presidency, right? And and there was a point actually where it was just going up. There was like a bizarre lack of volatility. And I do think that he can reasonably take credit for for some of that. Now it seems sort of tone deaf given that things are so bad for certain people in the country. But it was always kind of a silly idea to tie your performance to the stock market because the stock market is very fickle, right? Like it reacts to strange things. People don't always even know why the stock market is reacting. Um, you know, some, some of what drives its performance is actually computer algorithms. So um, it's as a politician, it's not really like a solid base foundation of thing that you necessarily want to have as a barometer of your performance. But at the same time, he's right that, you know, people's 401ks are tied to the stock market. And if the stock market's going up, all of those people are probably going to be happy. His approval ratings on the economy have always been better than his kind of overall approval ratings. Do do people generally connect the stock market to the economy more broadly? And is that what he's trying to do? That's a great point. I think I think there's also a lot of signaling of like, I'm good at helping the economy and the stock market is an indication of that. Which, again, I will say is not is not completely, completely incorrect that the stock market does at some level reflect, you know, investors' long-term concept of where they think the economy is going um, and their concept of how certain companies are doing. But as we've talked about, there's also all sorts of reasons why the stock market in general and the stock market, especially right now, because of the way that economic aid has worked, is, is more disconnected from the economy, for the rest of the economy. The stock market is a, is a really important part of the economy, but but it's not necessarily a reflection of it. It's just not the part everyone thinks it is. Oh, boy. This has been a very unsettling episode. All right, that's our show. Our producer this week is Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. 
Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. Subscribe to Nerdcast wherever you listen, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, check out some of our other podcasts. There's Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, Pulse Check, just to name a few. And coming soon, a brand new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. The way to bring this country to its knees is to choke off our supply. Imagine for a second our globe as a series of supply chains. Food, everyday goods, and raw materials. Zooming across the world in a single day. But what if those global supply chains suddenly ground to a halt? It's not just about finding which vaccines work. It's about preparing the manufacturing and supply chains for those. And if one little detail in those supply chains goes wrong, we might not be getting vaccines to people when they desperately need them. The global pandemic showed us what it's like when we can't get the things we need. Masks, personal protective equipment, even toilet paper. There's simply not enough raw materials. We have to figure out how to get this right. There is a bigger story behind the scarcity. We need to fight back against China. A bigger picture with implications for our future. That's going to be a major challenge. On this season of Global Translations, where has globalization fallen short? And where do we go from here? The 90s called and their economics is not what we need now. I'm Louisa Savage. I've spent my career thinking about the global forces that shape our world. Join me and other journalists from Politico. A new season of Global Translations coming in October. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening.